church is the authority in our lives. So it's not for us to, to read the Bible and then bring our interpretation to it. It's for us to read the Bible and then submit ourselves to it and to go down on our knees and to accept what the Bible has to say to us about us and about God. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We've had a, a wonderful build-up in Hebrews through the last nine chapters going to chapter 10 of um, the writer making a great case to the Hebrew believers of the superiority of Jesus over absolutely everything that came before in the Old Testament. And I'd like to say superiority over absolutely everything in the universe. Everything. So we're going to go straight into the text after I've prayed and uh, then we're going to dig in a little deeper and find out how is it that this writer brings this case for the superiority of Jesus almost to a close before he, he starts um, um, so turning that into application. What are the Hebrew believers meant to be doing based on the argument that he's just proposed? So Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that 2,000 years after your son walked the earth, we have a record for us to, to reflect on. Lord, I want to thank you that your word is, is good for, for teaching, it's good for reproach, it's, it's good for, for bringing us to a place where we can reflect on ourselves and our actions and also reflect on the glory of you, Jesus Christ. And, and Lord, the massive gap that you filled when you went to the cross. So, Lord, as we read your word, we ask that you would submit our hearts, that you'd yield our minds, that you'd still any earthly arguments that we'd have against what you have to say, and that we would learn. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us not only in our minds, but, but in our hearts as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, okay, so chapter 10 then, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins Every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their, mind, their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, I became a Christian like properly became a Christian, not just going to church now and again on a, a Sunday or Easter, um, when I was 18. And maybe one day I'll tell you a little bit more of the story of how that happened. But just know that at the time I was a, a passionate designer slash surfer, which was spending, I was spending half my time on the beach, half my time in art school, and I was going to revolutionize the world, pretty much like every single 18-year-old out there. Um, because of me, the world was going to be a better place, and it was going to be more fun, more people would take up surfing, and more people would appreciate art and the, the effects it could have on society. Um, and when I became a Christian, I embraced it with absolutely everything I had. God totally, totally changed me. I'd love to one day get some of my friends from art school and, and bring them over here so they can tell you how much I offended them the day after I became a Christian. Um, I was at church every Sunday, I was at youth every Wednesday, I was at life group every Friday, I was at Saved Surf Club every Monday, I was attending courses and reading the Bible and watching cheesy 80s Christian teaching videos, and you know, if you get through a couple of those, you definitely are saved. Um, those of you that have seen them would know. I was totally high on Jesus, and I was, I was growing quickly. I remember thinking... Uh, a few years in, that Christ had almost completed his work of sanctification in me. I was that close to perfect. And then about a week later, I was tempted, and I stumbled, and I fell. I messed up big time, big time. And I remember being gutted by the way that I had responded to this temptation. And I could have run from Jesus at that, at that point. I was so ashamed. I felt terrible. But instead of running, I ran towards him. As much as it hurt me, as much as I felt shame being in his presence, I knew that he'd loved me because through those few years, I might have got the sanctification but wrong. I might realize now that I'm not perfect, but he is. And what he had done in me was perfect. And I could come to him without being ashamed. A little bit after that, I met Becky, and to be totally honest, she's not here right now, but she has read this bit, and she knows what I'm about to say. Um, I, I completely fell in love with her. I mean, completely fell in love with her. I remember sitting in the back of church, and I saw this head of hair, a couple of rows in front of me, and I completely fell in love with her. I hadn't even met her yet, and I was completely in love with her. Of course, I played it cool back then. She didn't know about it for a few years. <laughs> but... Um, but I pursued her, um, but I pursued her in counsel with, with guys that, that I submitted myself to. And I was doing everything I could to make sure that, that we did it right because I didn't want to blow it. I really felt like she was the girl for me and that God had brought her to me and I didn't want to mess up in any way and, and ruin what, what had happened there. But anyway, the truth is we got married. And um, I remember a month after 
getting married, someone came and said to me, um, this, is, this is the polite way, they said that, that marriage was a means of grace. I wasn't quite sure what they meant by that, so they explained it slightly differently. He said, um, God uses it as a tool to refine your character um, and make you more like him. Really what he was saying is to knock off a few rough edges. Um, and this is the, the phrase he used. Just when you think you're perfect, God brings you a spouse. And you discover just how carnal and selfish you still are. And it was true. I really, um, I thought I was a pretty good guy. Then I got married and I realized that I'm terribly, terribly selfish. I've got better words to use, but I can't say it right now. I was horrible. Let's just be honest. I was horrible. I didn't like who I was. Um, But again, God was faithful. And through our marriage... And through small victories every day, um, God, Becky and I could celebrate as we saw, again, God's work of sanctification in my life. I'm sure I was doing the same thing to Becky. I'm sure Becky had just as many challenges as I did. Um, and we were growing together to become more and more like Jesus. And then we had a child. And I remember someone saying to me, just when you think you're perfect, God gives you a child. And the process carried on. I found great comfort in the words of Paul that day. Um, The great apostle found exactly the same law at work in him. In Romans 7, 21, verse 25, he said it like this. He said, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he ends with, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I think it's almost more like, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he realized there was absolutely no way that he could overcome what was going on inside of him, the turmoil that was going on inside of him, outside of the finished work of Christ on the cross and how it acts out on his life daily. This is the purpose of preaching, to help you see Jesus, not just glimpse him, but to see his glory in every part of his word and in every part of your life. There's a second purpose, and that is to help you see the depth of your own sinfulness. And the truth is that that's a gift it's like, um, it's like if you live in a house and you've got a gas leak but no sense of smell. If you can't smell the gas and you slowly fall unconscious, that's not a good thing. The gift is when you have the sense of smell and you can smell that there's something wrong and then you're compelled to do something about it. And that's why the second purpose of preaching, the second purpose of the Bible, to bring you constantly to awareness of your sin is a gift. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I know that some would say that you shouldn't be conscious of your sin anymore. In fact, the argument we've just looked at in those scriptures say that if those sacrifices had been sufficient, that they wouldn't be conscious of their sin anymore. So in a sense, that's true, but not in the sense that you're completely and utterly unaware of your life. In fact, if you look at the Word of God, the whole Old Testament is in fact a 2,000-year history which essentially points out the depth of human depravity. 
Go ahead and read the whole thing. Let me know what you think. Our absolute inability to redeem ourselves becomes clear when you read it, or to do anything that God requires of us for any sustained length of time, and to highlight the absolute necessity of a mediatory redeemer. Israel was always looking out for a Messiah, someone who would come and set them free completely. And if you think it ends with the Old Testament, it certainly doesn't. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's constantly highlighting the sinfulness of men and their desperate need for a stand-in. And if you think it changes after his crucifixion, then Paul becomes a thorn in your side because he carries on talking the way I just quoted, and he keeps on highlighting sin and how horrible it is and how much of a hold it has over him and he continues to highlight sinfulness in the churches who he writes to and calls them to continual repentance from their ways. But at the same time, at exactly the same time, he delights in the fact that he and they and us would have no hope if it wasn't for the finished work of Christ on the cross. You see, I've heard it said often that... um, in the church, that we preach the gospel to the unconverted. And then we train the saints in the greater things of God. We feed our babies milk, the gospel, and we feed our young sons meat, the greater things of God. But if you look at the New Testament, especially Paul's view of himself, you see that the gospel is all that is preached to everyone, always, whether they be babies, whether they be sons whether they be fathers. The gospel or the work of Christ on the cross is not the gate to the kingdom. It's the center of the kingdom. It's the prize of the kingdom. It's the mystery of the kingdom. It's the glory of the kingdom. I've popped a little chart up there that a friend of mine uses sometimes when he's talking about um, the growing awareness of the cross in your life. And those two arrows that are moving out over time Those things happen in your life as a Christian, whether you like it or not. As you walk on, from the point of conversion, you become more and more and more aware of the holiness of God. And at exactly the same time, you become more and more and more aware of the seriousness or the gravity of your own sinful nature. That's what was happening to me in that little story about my salvation. Three years in, I thought I was perfect. I'm now 20 years in, and I think I'm a sinner. I think I finally got it. It's not that I'm getting worse. It's that I'm becoming more aware of the gravity of the situation. God is so much more holy than I ever imagined Him to be when I was saved. He was holy enough then for me to realize that I needed to be saved. And the seriousness of my sin is so much more than I'd imagined when I was saved. Again, I was aware enough of my sin to know I needed to be saved. But over the course of my life and over the course of a Christian's life, if the gospel is working correctly and if it is being preached to you, whether it be from the the stage or when you're reading the Bible or your own time with God, if it's working correctly in you, that gap is constantly filled by the work of the cross. And there's no need for additional stuff. There's no need for you to lie to your friends because of what's going on inside. There's no need to perform Um, to try and make up the gap between where the cross is and the holiness of God. You'll constantly be reminded of how wonderful Christ is, and His work becomes more and more amazing to you. So that's the work of preaching, and that's really what the writer of the Hebrews is 
banging on about for 10 chapters. He's preaching. That's what he's doing. These guys, he knows these guys well. He knows the Hebrews well. It seems very implicit in the way that he's written. Um, And he's writing to them about something that's going on inside their hearts. There's a war inside their hearts that's fighting against the finished work of Christ on the cross. No, no doubt they're in a place of persecution, suffering, and if you look at, the, look at it pragmatically, you could say, you know what, it's quite realistic for them to back down, to maybe kind of step off the podium and, and not be so strong about the work that Christ has done in their lives. But the, the, the writer is saying to them, do not forsake what Christ has done in you. And he very cleverly uses a whole lot of arguments, not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament, because he knows that they are so well-versed in the first five books of the Torah that they will understand that what he's saying to them every single step of the way is that Christ is just so good. There is absolutely no way under any circumstances that you should forsake what you have gained in your belief or faith in Christ. That's what he's doing. He's saying to them, Christ plus anything is nothing. Christ is all you need. He's done once and for all what the Old Testament priests and the system of sacrifice could only point towards. All of these Old Testament rituals could never make right what was wrong between God and man. They were always meant to be a constant reminder of the gravity of sin and the holiness of God. The gospel was always God's plan A. God didn't change his mind and send Jesus because the Old Testament wasn't working. The Old Testament was always pointing to Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of God's people. So to the Hebrews, he's saying, now that you've come to faith in Christ, there's absolutely no need to go back to those rituals. There's no need to to step away uh, from what Christ has done for you. It might be scary. You might face death. But do not forsake what he has given you, because what he's given you is worth far more than your life. So let's take another look at chapter 10 then, and we're going to see if we can catch a glimpse of glorious Jesus, starting in, in verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The word offering refers to the death of Christ, um, the offering of his own body in death on the cross. You can see that in in verse 10. Um, And the he is obviously Jesus doing the perfecting that follows straight on from verse 13. I don't think we're going to argue about that yet. Okay, good. But there's something else that's really important to notice in this verse, and that's the tenses of the words perfected and sanctified. Firstly, perfected. This is written in the past tense. In other words, it's an action that's already completed, and it's completed completely. It's done, done, done. No more doing needed. It's finished. It's an action that has already been perfectly completed. So the sense is that Christ's offering of his own body has already made a group of people perfect. They're already perfect, and they're already perfect for all time. They're not already perfect and then will sort of become imperfect at some point. They're already perfect for all time. Secondly, the word sanctified, which is written in the present tense in the Greek, which indicates a present, ongoing activity. In other words, this same offering of his 
is presently acting upon that same group of people, continuously sanctifying them. And this sense of ongoing process of sanctification is really important if we're to understand what is actually being taught in this verse. And we'll come back to that. Up until this verse, the point being made is that Christ's own sacrifice replaces the Old Testament requirement of repeated animal sacrifices to deal with sin. And the argument is elaborate, and I don't really have a lot of time or enough time to go into it in detail, but the point is quite simple. It's this. The law prescribed repeated animal sacrifices for sin, and the very repetition of those sacrifices showed that they did not perfect the sinners. There was nothing decisive or once for all that happened to deal with sin ever in this repeated process, because if they had perfected the people once and for all, the sacrifices would have stopped being offered. So, what the writer's doing is he's pointing out there's a built-in testimony that the Old Testament system is not sufficient to deal with sin, that the system itself testifies to its insufficiency to deal with the problem completely. And then the writer goes further. Remember, he always uses the Old Testament. He goes back and he, he quotes Jesus quoting Psalm 40 to show that animal sacrifice was never God's main plan for dealing with sin. The main plan was always Christ. The Old Covenant, in a sense is 2,000 years of shadows or reflections. I've heard someone call it a flannel graph, um, for those of you that are used to those little felt boards. A little bit of a story, a lesson, which was always meant to point to the glory of Christ and the gravity of sin. The great difference, he always points out these contrasts, the great difference that's being raised here between what Christ did and what the priests of the Old Testament did is summed up briefly in verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So there's a couple of contrasts there. Many priests versus Christ, our one high priest. So if you'd imagine every day, um, priests on shifts, just killing loads of animals in front of the altar and, and bringing those offerings over and over again, and then this big offering every single year on the Day of Atonement versus Jesus Christ, our one high priest, not just making the offering, but offering himself once for all time. Second contrast is, as I've just said, the many, many sacrifices versus one sacrifice. Loads of blood, loads of animals that could never really deal with the problem versus his one sacrifice that dealt with the problem completely. But there's another contrast here that you may have missed, and that is that the priests stand daily and that Jesus sat down after making his offering. And that means at least three things. It means that Christ's work is complete, like we've just said. The priest's work was not complete, so they stood daily. But when Christ made his offering, he sat down. His work was complete. 
He sat down at the right hand of God, which means that God is satisfied with that sacrifice. This is really important. He's made a sacrifice for us, and God is satisfied with that sacrifice, means that there is no need for any more sacrifice on our behalf. God is satisfied. And then the third thing, that Christ is sovereign over all his enemies because he sat down waiting for his enemies to become a footstool for him, which means that there's no opposition outside of the Godhead that can thwart what Jesus has already done when he offered himself for us on the cross. So the point then is what Christ has set out to accomplish, most definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, if you're uncertain, go and check the Bible again, he will absolutely accomplish it. That's the point. There's no argument. This is meant to be instilling confidence inside you for what Christ has done. So let's go back to verse 14 then and notice, firstly, Christ has perfected his people. Does this mean that Christians no longer sin, that they no longer forget, that they no longer make mistakes in tests or exams? There's at least one reason in my life that I can think of um, that says that that's not sh- surely not the way that this verse can be interpreted. But there's also something in that verse because this perfection is acted out upon those being sanctified. So they're clearly not perfect yet in the sense of having no sin. That's why the tense of the verse is so important. You can also remember if you look back to chapters 5 and 6 that these Christians he's writing to are anything but perfect. The Hebrews themselves are not perfect. For example, in 5.11 he says, you have become dull of hearing. And he was talking about hearing the gospel and applying it in their lives. So we may safely say that perfected does not mean that they're sinlessly perfect in this life. What does it mean then? The writer goes on to explain it again by quoting out of the Old Testament from Jeremiah, where he says, In the new covenant with Christ, which Christ, sorry, in the new covenant which Christ has sealed, um, now by his blood, there's total forgiveness for all of our sins. Verses 17 and 18 say as much, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's completely finished. So he explains the church's perfection in terms of forgiveness. Christ's people are perfected now in the sense that God puts away all of our sin. He forgives those sins, and He never brings them to mind again. We stand before Him perfect. Then He looks on us, and He does not impute any of our sins against us, past, present, or future. He does not count our sins against us. Secondly, then, Let's have a look at whom Christ has done this perfecting work on the cross for. You can put it, I'm going to do it a bit provocatively maybe, you could put it like this. Christ has perfected once and for all those who are being perfected. Or you could say, and the writer does say as much in verse 10, Christ has fully sanctified those who are now being sanctified. 
Or you could say that Christ has fully accomplished and guaranteed the holiness of those who are now being made holy. What this means is that you can know that you stand perfect in the eyes of your Heavenly Father if you are moving away from your present imperfection towards more and more holiness by faith in future grace. This verse means that you can have assurance that you stand perfected and completed in the eyes of your Heavenly Father, not because you're perfect now, but precisely because you're not perfect now, but you are being sanctified. You are being made holy. That by faith in God's promises, you are moving away from your lingering imperfection towards more and more holiness. Hebrews 10 verse 32 through 35 is an example of this. Maybe I'll, I'll read it very quickly. We'll look at it next week again, but um, he says to them there, but recall the former days, their former days, when after you were enlightened, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they were willing to lose everything because they knew that what they'd gained in Christ was greater than anything they could lose. And that caused them to move on in sanctification, to becoming more and more holy, to becoming more like Jesus. This is a great gift. We can take courage that we are already perfectly forgiven, and so he will continue the work and perfect us in every way. It also means that as we look at our own lives... We can see the effect of his work in us becoming more like him. And that confirms that he has perfected us and has assured our salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. At the same time, like Paul, we become more aware of our own sinfulness, and this doesn't lead us into despair as though we have no hope but it leads us to a place of awe of the glorious work of the cross and it increases our thankfulness to Him and it spurs us on to every good work, not out of a sense of inadequacy or obligation, but from a sense of security and thankfulness. Jesus is a better sacrifice, not just because He deals completely and utterly with the problem of sin and perfects us in front of his Father. Not because the blood that he spilt is more powerful than the blood of sheep and animals to cover over our sin. He's a greater sacrifice because that very same sacrifice is still presently, currently active in not just bringing us forgiveness, but growing us in sanctification to becoming more and more like Him. That is a powerful sacrifice. Phil, I'd love it if you guys could come up and join me. Um, 
And so I guess I end the sermon really asking if, if, it, if your faith, does your faith, and this is the challenge, does your faith make you eager to forsake sin and move forward in righteousness? Is your heart encouraged by the fact that you're already perfect and that your discontentment with your lingering imperfection is evidence of your assured salvation? Can you cry out to God with Paul? I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Do we wake up delighting in the law of God in our inner beings? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. But I will not lose hope because who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who has already perfected me in front of my fa- our Father. And because of that perfection, I am encouraged to walk on in sanctification. I can look back at my life and I can see the effects of his sacrifice and how he has changed me. Let's stand, let's pray. So Lord God, I just want to thank you that that in your word that you have preserved for us. You have given us a mirror that reveals the state of our own souls. And you've also given us a, a picture of what you have done for us. You have shown us that you have completely filled the gap. You have died and that death has completely satisfied God. You were risen from death and you stood victorious over all your enemies. And Lord, in your word, as we've read today, you are now seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for those enemies to become a footstool for you. That you are completely and utterly victorious in your sacrifice. That you have completed completely what needed to be done before the Father. That we stand as a people that can completely trust in what you have done to be sufficient for everything that we will do in the future, what we are doing now, and what we have done in the past. But Lord, I want to thank you that your word doesn't leave it there, that the grace that you've extended to us isn't satisfied to just leave us forgiven, but is active in our lives and continues to move us from one level of holiness to another, from one level of glory to another, as we look back at the work of your salvation and the testimony of our own lives, we see growth. We see that we've moved away from imperfection towards perfection, and we take courage from that, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that if there are any amongst us here that have grown cold, that no longer see the glory of the cross, that are no longer inspired to move on because of what you have done for us. If there are any of us that are in that place, Holy Spirit, that you would reignite that fire inside 
our hearts, that we would want to pursue you every day, become more like you every day, forsake those things that are not like you every day because we love you so much and because we're so thankful for what you've done and because you've empowered us to do it. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to worship God. We're going to spend time in his presence. I would encourage you that uh, if you do feel like you need that fire reawakened inside your heart, that you do respond to that. That you ask someone to pray for you. That you ask someone to help you. That you perhaps ask someone to help you be accountable to them for the way you live your life and for the time that you spend with Christ. And for those of you that when you hear these words, they resonate inside of your heart and you feel like a song is welling up inside of you, respond to God in that way. Celebrate Him and glorify Him and lift Him up and raise Him up over this time. For those of you that feel like you need to respond by ministering to your brothers and sisters that need you, do that as well. Thank you, Lord.